Hey everyone, welcome to Mobile DevOps is a Thing, a podcast by Bitrise, featuring mobile developers and their processes from all around the world. Today we're going to focus on app distribution best practices, continuous deployment, release strategies, white labeling, and some real-life examples. I'm Nora Basie, and I'm here with Kevin Toms, developer advocate. Hey Kevin. Good afternoon. How are you? Good. Lovely sunny day. Good. And our special guest today is Keegan Rush, the lead iOS and macOS developer at Shotflow and the author of the recently published book, iOS App Distribution and Best Practices. Hey, Keegan. Hey, Nora. Hey, Kevin. Uh, Thank you too so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to get started and learn more about you. So first of all, could you tell us a bit more about yourself? Yeah, I'm Keegan Rush. I consider myself to be very good at iOS app development and very bad at introductions, so bear with me. I've been working on iOS for the last six years or so, starting in Swift 2 and back in Objective-C days. So I've been battling with uh, iOS app distribution for a for a couple of years on top of that. And I would consider myself as a person that likes to create process and likes to organize my tools and my workflow to work for me. And, and that's what inspired me to, to write this book, uh, iOS app distribution and best practices to sort of share that love of improving those processes and to hopefully help uh, the junior devs out there through to the seniors to make app distribution a breeze. Uh, Thanks so much. That was actually going to be my next question. What inspired you to write it? So this book is essentially everything that developers need to know to set up continuous deployment. And it basically walks them through creating an app and publishing it to the app stores. And we think it's a great read for everyone who's involved in deployment, whether they are becoming the DevOps practitioner within the team or they are the ones who manage the release trains. Is this something that you had in mind when you were writing it or is this something that you thought that the book's main purpose would be? I would say that there are two purposes, and that's because mobile DevOps and and app distribution on on iOS is, in my opinion, very easy to learn, but very hard to master. So that's our two purposes, is the first half of the book is targeted at anyone, whether or not they are iOS developers, anyone that wants to be involved in distributing an iOS app. That could be a product manager or honestly anyone on a a product team, Uh, whether it be code signing, provisioning profiles, or even just getting introduced to App Store Connect and test flight and the rest. And the second purpose of that book beyond the basics is for the more experienced developer uh, that would want to become the go-to person for DevOps in their team. So maybe you're very familiar with releasing an app on the App Store, but maybe you want a bit of a refresher course in how you can manage that process. Maybe you want to step outside of Xcode, which you've been using to deploy, and move into an online solution, online CI solution like Bitrars. And and the second half of the book basically just talks people through everything that is going on under the hood when you are 
managing an iOS app and how you can get that deployed. So in that sense, it's quite different from just reading Apple's documentation, right? Because it offers a lot more and it's more like a handbook discussing uh, how things should be done or could be done better with examples and your personal opinion as well. So I think this is what makes it really valuable. Oh yeah, the, the book is very opinionated in that it doesn't just talk about what are the concepts, but rather how you can use them to, to actually solve real world problems. And it, it walks through full examples with that, you know, starting, starting with an iOS app and then deploying it and basically introducing all these different best practices into the app. One of the things I liked about the book is the way that it led you step by step through more and more complicated or important things that built on previous learnings. And one of the things you drew out in the book was that people can do the steps. They can do an app deployment, for example, on iOS, complete the whole process, get it on the app store. And if they've got to do it again six months later, they won't necessarily remember how they did it. And it's as if they're starting again. And, and that's a problem for them, really, mm. uh, with the book I, I think you're aiming at um, helping with that real understanding of the process. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, it's so easy now to deploy an app onto the App Store, right? When, when Xcode manages all of your code signing, it's pretty much you, you tick a checkbox and you, you hit deploy. Next thing you know, you have a build available on App Store Connect. But what happens when that sort of golden path scenario doesn't always work. I mean, Kevin, I'm sure you're familiar with the days before we had uh, all this automatically managed code signing. It was, it was a much harder process. And every now and then, you're likely to run into situations where you have to turn off that automatically managed code signing. Maybe you have one code base that is deployed into three different apps. And in those times, it's it's useful to know exactly how to do these things yourself. And also, even if your process works just fine with the automatically managed deployments, it really helps to know what's going on under the hood when you, when you step beyond Xcode and you move into some more advanced practices like continuous integration and continuous deployment. Yeah, I, I agree with you that it's a lot better uh, it used to feel a bit like jumping hurdles one by one. And once you jumped that hurdle, you were hoping you wouldn't have to deal with it again. It's kind of how it felt. But one of the things I also liked you did in the book was that you didn't just talk about how to do it. You talked about a bit of history about why Apple has done things the way they have. They're not just being difficult. It's to do with how they are protecting the security and integrity of, the, uh, of their apps and the App Store system and your own device as well. Yeah, it's a huge pain, but uh, I'd much rather deal with all of that extra work around uh, security than, than not have it at all and kind of be in the Wild West. We're ver I think we're very lucky in how well managed the App Store is. And there are a lot of, there are a lot of complaints and it can, it can hurt when, those, mm, when that management of the App Store seems to negatively target your app. But I'd much rather have it there than to be in the Wild West without it. Yeah, it's one of those things where because it works, you only see the problems. But if it wasn't there doing what it does and we were getting a lot of apps with viruses that were hacking into different parts of your device, we'd feel different. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like some other operating systems, which we won't mention here. <laughs>
<laughs> I mentioned them. <laughs> so when you were putting together the book, did you have in mind things you had seen as regular problems that people fall over? Uh, and did that guide what you were putting together as uh, in the book? To sort of like, that happens a lot. Let's discuss that. Definitely. I would say um, one big inspiration was, again, those uh, troubles that you tend to face when you've turned off automatic code signing or rather back in the day when we didn't have automatic code signing. So those problems are all still very much aware. And I feel, I feel a lot of the difficulty of App Store distribution is centered around code signing. So I would say that really is large a large uh, factor in determining what we cover in the book. But beyond that, even with all of the amenities that we have today, I've, I've spent some time in a lot of different companies. I'm, I'm now at ShotFlow where I am the lead iOS and macOS developer, but that is also me as the only iOS and macOS developer. And the process in a small company like where I am now is very much different to a, a faster paced startup. Maybe they've brought on their first hundred engineers and the most important factor is time to market or sort of on the other side of the spectrum, a large enterprise like a bank, which focuses a lot on security and also basically management of, of large teams of developers. They all have different concerns that I've faced in the past at, at these types of companies. And I sort of drew on those to, and that those experiences to find better ways to solve different problems. So I've, I've worked, I've been very lucky to work with a lot of smart people in my past, and they've taught me a lot of, a lot of techniques that make smart use of a project structure in Xcode. So I've learned a lot of techniques throughout the years of how to manage targets and build settings, build configurations and schemes in order to ease deployment at a large bank or at a bustling startup, things like that. The book was also written in conjunction with the Ray Wenderlich team. And once again, I was very lucky to have such a large community of talented developers that have also had sort of numerous problems. And we were lucky enough to be able to collaborate and cover some of the more popular or the more common problems in the book. Talking about that, uh, talking about what you just said, build configurations, I think it might be a good example, but you tell me really. Um, obviously, there is documentation done by Apple explaining what you can do, how you can alter your build configuration. Mm -hmm. But sometimes documentation like that gives you all the details about all the options, but it doesn't really explain why you need to do it and what you would use it for. Um, I felt when I was reading through the book that that was one thing you did uh, well in the book. You, you gave a purpose to why you would, and, and a step-by-step -step flow to why you start uh, looking at build configurations for different purposes, like for different app deployments to test and QA, et cetera. Yeah, so I think there's no replacement for Apple's documentation and then the book does not intend to, to do that, but... That, that's a great example of build configurations. There's very good documentation on build configurations, build settings, targets, and schemes. But these are all separate areas of documentation. There's not, there's not a lot of cohesion in between that. And well, the book puts those all into one single chapter, basically 
explaining them from a more holistic point of view, how they work together and how you can use that for your benefit. So first we learn what, what tools do you have and, and how you can use that. And later on in the book, uh, we talk about using bulk configurations and the rest for solving specific problems. So if you wanted to white label an app, the example that we use is make an application for a pizza parlor, a pizza place. You might want to sell that app that manages a pizza restaurant to many different pizza restaurants. They have similar needs. And you don't need to spin out a hundred different Xcode projects, copy paste everything and change the name Luigi's Pizza Restaurant and et cetera, et cetera, for all the different ones. You can manage that in one project. And the way you would do that is with the interplay of build configurations, build settings, schemes, and targets. Yeah, so you mentioned white labeling. I found this part really interesting. I think it was uh, chapter 15, publishing in the real world. And I think it explained it really well and in a really easily understandable way with the examples of pizza restaurant apps. So what kind of other experiences or examples do you have from the real world when it comes to white labeling or reskinning apps for different businesses? I have had some experience with that. I worked on a enterprise messaging application, you could call it. So sort of, sort of like Slack in concept, or at least um, sort of like Slack's industry. Uh, basically an app where it would only be available within your organization. But the, the difference is that the app would have the same branding as whoever used it. So you might see different companies basically using the exact same app. And that app would be the same under the hood. It works exactly the same, but it has a different API. It's uh, maybe using an internal, an internal API, an internal server, not my server. It's using the company's own server. And it's got their images, it's got their labels in it. And um, as a user, I've also experienced it as well. I actually have a smart scale in my house. It shows your body fat and a bunch of other things. And I've been using that for a couple of years. And uh, I went over Christmas and I went to my parents uh, back in South Africa. And my, my dad has a similar scale. It's a completely different brand. But I looked at his app, he'd shown me a few screenshots and it's the exact same app, except the colors are a little bit different and the company name. And I can actually use his scale, which is from a completely different company. I can use his scale with my app from my company and uh, everything works fine. You could maybe actually see that as an example of mismanagement of white labeling. I don't think that my app should work with his scale, but it does, so I'm happy. That's interesting. Just going back to white labeling and the process uh, of creating that uh, or creating different versions of an app from one set of code. Uh, one of the things you do in the book is, as you said, Xcode does a lot for you and you gradually peel back what Xcode is doing for you in, into configurations and to separate files. And gradually through that process, you are, helping, uh, the, you, are, you are helping the developer learn 
what's actually going under the hood, what's been done automatically for you, which you don't need, or put it this way, if you can switch it to a manual uh, scripted way of working, it gives you more flexibility and more scope. I mean, that's how you do it step by step, isn't it, in the book? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, for example, you use bold configurations every day and you don't need to know exactly what they are. But when you hit command R in Xcode and you, you run an app, you are using a debug bold configuration. But when you try to archive that app to upload it to App Store Connect, you're just building it again, but using the release configuration. So you, you start off with two different configurations in any app, that debug and release configuration. But the, the combination that you can make or the different configurations you can use are endless. It's just those are two very handy defaults. And if that, if that sort of takes you by surprise that something as fundamental as running in a debug mode versus uploading to App Store Connect, if that is an interesting topic, then I think you'll love learning the different uses of uh, build configurations in the book. And it also, uh, in a way, because it's doing everything for you, it blinds you to the capabilities you already have if you just yeah. tap into using it. And I notice in the book, you then take, you start stripping out the configurations and, and moving them to scripts, which gradually builds towards more and more automation, doesn't mm -hmm. it, of, of your build. And you start to see the benefits of automation. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, automation as important as it is, it can definitely be a bit of a pain if you don't really know what you're automating. So, so the book follows a very incremental process, as you're saying, of uh, basically learning what Xcode is doing for you. And once you know what Xcode is doing for you, you can write your own script that basically takes control of Xcode. But I mean, luckily we've had people write those scripts for us. And an honorable mention there goes to Fastlane, which is an absolutely amazing tool, which deserves a book of its own, probably has a book of its own. And um, yeah, basically once you know what Xcode is doing, you can do it all yourself. And once you get tired of doing it all yourself, you have Fastlane to, to make automation a breeze. And the book takes you through that journey into Fastlane on your own Mac and then into the cloud. So how would you describe uh, Fastlane as a tool and what it's actually doing for you? Fastlane is your, your butler on your Mac that can manage basically everything uh, from the point of, you might have only an idea of an app. Fastlane can actually use App Store Connect's API to log on create an app record, which is basically just registering that app online, basically making a shell of an app. Uh, it can set up a Xcode project for you with the, with the right name, the right bundle identifier, matching what you have in App Store Connect and get you to the point where you're ready to start writing some code. Then the real benefit picks up once you are ready to start testing bolts. Once you've been working a little bit, Fastlane uh, can automate that build process. It makes it really easy to build your app and uh, run unit tests. You can use it to run your automated test suite. And then most importantly, 
Fastlane makes it a lot easier to push your build somewhere else, to upload your build. So you can upload your build straight to App Store Connect within Fastlane, or you can push it to a continuous integration server. Uh, I mean, most, most continuous integration setups for iOS use Fastlane to very easily build the app and then push it to, to App Store Connect. And I mean, the reason why I said it's sort of like a butler for your, for your project is one of the most tedious things you'll find is doing screenshots for your, for your app. And it's absolutely mind-boggling how Fastlane can do those screenshots for you. Once you have your, your UI tests, your automated UI tests, you can configure Fastlane to run through those tests and take screenshots on all of your screens in all of the languages that you need. You can easily have the need to take hundreds of screenshots for your app in order to make a release on the App Store. And you just go grab a coffee, spend some time outside, and let Fastlane build your app, run your tests, take your screenshots, upload your app, and even submit it for review to the App Store team. It's, it's uh, un- undoubtedly a painful part of putting your app on the App Store because you don't just have to capture screenshots from one version of your app. You have to capture it on different devices and device sizes and it's very particular the app store is very particular about having the right resolution for all the different screenshots so shots so that's uh, that automation is extremely uh, useful um from what you were saying i mean you have a chapter on it in the book uh, detailing and explaining and going through the steps of using Fastlane. yeah mm-hmm. i would say interpreting what you're saying um you could say that learn how to use xcode and then once you've mastered the basics start incorporating Fastlane into your process. Would you say that's true? Yeah, definitely. As soon as you're trying to release your app at a cadence that's faster than once every six months or once in a blue moon, you need to find something that's easy to do. It doesn't take a lot of effort and something that's consistent. That means automating your build. Right now, the best way to automate the best way to automate your build is with Fastlane, without a doubt. And maybe maybe you don't actually like Fastlane for uh, for some particular reason. Well, that's why it's important to know how things are working. So if you don't like the way something's done, you can actually make your own tool. You can script this all out yourself. But um, but yeah, it's really important as you are releasing your app more frequently or even just pushing your app to testers. It's really important to get a consistent process where you can sort of rely on clicking one button and having your app be built for you and then being pushed out to testers or to App Store Connect or wherever you need it to go. So obviously, as you're becoming more and more mature, you introduce more and more automation and continuous integration is kind of the backbone of this, as we like to say. So what's your take on CI's role in this process and on different CI providers? So in my experience, there are three different categories of CI providers. There's manual where you would have to configure everything from scratch. That means writing your own scripts to build the app. And it also means setting up a server 
where the app is actually going to get built. That might be good in a very secure enterprise scenario where you don't want to push your code sort of out of your internal firewall. Step up from that is managed CI providers where there's, there's a bit of structure around it. You get things like workflows, basically a structure where you can um, where you can tell your CR provider to run your scripts in a particular order. You get triggers where you can tell the CR provider, when I push my code to GitHub, then uh, run my unit tests on my code. But you still need to manage a lot of the nasty stuff like code signing and provisioning. And once you are stepping away from Xcode, that automatic signing doesn't work so well anymore. So the book gives you everything you need to manage that code signing and provisioning. You're going to have the tools to set up any sort of CI service you want. But beyond managed CI providers, we get full service CI providers. And in my mind, that's where I see Bitrise stepping in. A full service CR provider makes it incredibly easy to manage your code signing and your provisioning. It, uh, they handle your build on the server. You just sort of connect it to your GitHub repository and you're set. I, on my iOS apps that I'm using Bitrise for deployment, I don't even write my own Fastlane scripts, but Bitrise is using Fastlane for me to, to compile my app and submit it to App Store Connect. So, so yeah, as the author of a book that is writing about deploying to the App Store, I would use Bitrise any day of the week. And honestly, I would recommend that you do too, because it's really important to know how your code signing and provisioning is working, but it's really, it can be a pain once you're stepping away from your Mac. So it's a real benefit to know how this is all working. It's amazing how much work I think Bitrise is actually doing under the hood. So I'd, I'd very happily move my builds to Bitrise. That's a, an interesting point you make there, uh, uh, that um, once you see how everything is working, uh, you know, that, as you say, your, your book explains all the steps you have to go to. And then uh, in, in some ways they come together when you start using something like Bitrise and it does a lot of those steps automatically for you takes the load off you. You haven't got to rewrite them every time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think if you if you know the work that goes into making, for example, a bagel that you would get at your, at your local bakery, uh, when you know the work that goes into something like that, honestly, it's such a pleasure to just uh, have someone else give that to me so I can spend more time eating my bagel and coding my app. So uh, if you have the opportunity to do that, I say go for it. Yeah, I'm trying to think whether we've got the bagel solution there or not. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Thank you so much. Uh, I didn't expect the bagel analogy, but now I'm craving a bagel. So thanks. <laughs> so you mentioned the release frequency. And as soon as you start automating and releasing more often than once in a blue moon, let's say, it's a huge improvement from there. And I was just wondering, like in your personal experience working for different types of businesses, what do you think? What's uh, an optimal release frequency? Is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as an optimal release cycle? Or just in general, what should teams aim to achieve? 
I think there are, I think there are studies out there that suggest what would be the ideal frequency. But I think for almost any team, if you have to ask that question, then the answer is always faster, always quicker. You can always, uh, you can always deploy your app faster. And that doesn't just mean getting it onto the app store. That also means getting it to testers. Are you taking a month to get a new build to testers? Try to do it in two weeks. So taking you two weeks, try one. Um, the only way you can do this is through automation. But I, I would always recommend considering getting a faster, quicker release cycle. Yeah, there's actually not too much data on the optimal release frequency yet and its correlation to App Store ratings. But there are a couple of interesting articles online. So one of them was written by Savvy Apps. How often should you update your app? They had a couple of interesting conclusions. For example, the most successful apps release one to four updates per month and that most feature updates should be scoped to be no further apart than two weeks, what you mentioned as well. This is basically what we think at Bitrise and this is what we're trying to help with to make it become a reality for all companies. There was this older article and it drew on a, an analysis done by the Lufthansa Innovation Hub. And they looked at the 10 leading airline companies and the frequency of the new version updates. And here they are concluded that the faster release cycles allow for developers to more rapidly improve and add new features, which is yeah, obvious to us. And then this other article, uh, I will link this in the show notes as well, it uh, drew on the study by Lufthansa and explored the connection between release cycles and App Store ratings. And it was in the mobility sector. So the hypothesis here was... The companies with shorter time spans between updates are more customer-centric, and then this customer centricity is what leads to higher app store ratings. And here, the conclusion was that the three apps with the longest time between updates had the worst ratings, and the app with the most frequent updates had the highest rating. So there is actually a correlation and uh, it was a small sample size and the correlation coefficient was 0.77, which is not super high, but it already means that it's a strong correlation. So it's, it's really interesting to see. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think that when a lot of people hear about shortening the release cycle, you might think that that's mainly about getting apps to customers quicker because you know, we, we want it and we want it now. But that's really not the major benefit in my mind. I, I see the major benefits of a quick release cycle being feedback and communication, constant feedback and communication. Basically, the sooner that you can get your work into the hands of someone else, again, your testers, your product manager or your users, the sooner you can hear from them uh, about what's working and what's not. And if something's not working, you're that much closer to pushing a fix. Uh, an interesting aspect of this, and I'm sure it's uh, something that will come into people's mind when you talk about um, releasing more frequently, is in the end, um, you're not putting it on a web server. You're having to deploy it on the App Store, and it has to go through the Apple app review process 
so you do you do talk about that in the book you talk about the review process what are your thoughts on things she, people should do to help them get through the review and not not fall at that hurdle so that obviously it would slow down their release cycle if they kept failing the app review process for example um tying that back to the to the release cycle quickly it's it's incredibly clear that Apple thinks that a short release cycle is better as well because the App Store review period used to take well over a week, a week to two weeks at a time. And that's done to easily below 24 hours now. And that's amazing. So you can tell that Apple is, is evaluating that as well. But as to the question of what would I suggest that one does in order to prepare for that, uh, that review process is to read the human interface guidelines. That's easily the best suggestion. It's some of Apple's best documentation as well that will guide you into making beautiful apps, not just apps that pass uh, the review. And beyond that, the iOS App Store distribution book goes into detail of preparing for uh, preparing for the review process. But once again, we don't cover that that sort of we don't replace Apple's documentation. So um, I've always relied on the human interface guidelines for my reviews. On a relate on a, on a, a slightly different topic, you also cover secrets in the book. And uh, I think handling secret, secrets as part of your process is another area. Can you perhaps discuss that? Yeah, of course. So secrets are any bits of information that you don't want visible to other people. So um, that could be a password for any service you're using, or it could be an API key, which is uniquely identifying you as the user of an API. If you are, if you're building a web app or basically a app that's not using core data, I suppose, a lot of databases, a lot of SQL databases, or rather I should say, all SQL databases have a password that you need to, to access. And that password is a secret. If you lose that password, or if you reveal that password, you're giving access to your database to someone that probably shouldn't get access. And in the book, we have a chapter that talks about ways to, to manage those secrets. If you leave your secrets in your code, then anyone that has access to that code is gonna be able to see that secret. And not only that, but you need to go into your code and make changes if the secret changes. And that goes into a very common DevOps practice, which is separate your code and your configuration, your secrets being your configuration. And um, so we talk about using some of those tools of Xcode to manage your secrets. And one of those tools is a configuration file. So going back to when we were talking about uh, bold settings and bold configurations, the book talks you through the process of making a file, just a plain text file, where you put in your basically keys and values. You can override bold settings 
and you can make your own build settings. And there's a lot of really interesting real world use cases that the book uh, goes through as to why you'd want to do that. And one of those is managing your secrets. So you can put it in that file. It's outside of your code base. And ideally, you wouldn't even put that in your GitHub repo. You'd have that only on your local machine. So by pulling those secrets out, putting them into a text file and not pushing that text file to any server, you're making sure that um, no one can see that except you. And when it comes time to do your, uh, your CI builds, if you need to use production secrets on something like Bitrise, you, get, you can conveniently securely store secrets as opposed to sort of general environment variables. Um, that being said, storing secrets in configuration files, I think is a very convenient way to handle it, but it's not the most secure. The most secure way of storing your secrets on your device is to make sure that they don't touch your device at all. So the ideal way would be to basically, if someone tries hard enough, they can get through almost all security you're putting up. I mean, that goes for home security through to app security. And if your secret is going to live on your customer's device in one way or another, there's, there's going to be a way that someone can get access to it if they try hard enough. So I would say that the most widely accepted secure way to handle those secrets is to not write it down anywhere on your side, but rather have it sent to your app by a secure server, HTTPS encrypted, so that you don't have to put it on your device where someone can go snooping around. Okay. So just picking up on something I've got written down here to prompt me, one of the things the book does is it goes really through the whole process from first you're creating an app or an Xcode, you're learning how to do that, you're learning how to do deployment manually, I would say then explains to you what you're doing under the hood so that you've got clarity on it. Then it progresses through some automation with Fastlane and then goes into more and more advanced uh, continuous deployment step by step so it really does lead you through the process is is that basically to some extent a description of the content of uh, in the book i don't want to underplay it because there's a lot of really valuable information there but yeah at, at, at one level i think you could you could summarize the book as starting from if you start from chapter one you can say it's starting as knowing nothing about the app store through to the last chapter becoming a mobile DevOps master. And it does that through using Xcode's automatic code signing to upload a build for you to App Store Connect. And again, by the end, doing that all uh, through Fastlane and continuous integration. And um, it actually the book actually stops there at continuous integration, which is... Um, using a server to run a test build of your app and run your unit tests. It doesn't go through to the, to the holy grail of app distribution, which is continuous deployment, uh, which is using a server to, after running your tests, um, then pushing a archived version of your build to, to App Store Connect or to test flight. And the reason for that is, well, continuous deployment is something that I would love to get into in the next version of the book. 
But as we were chatting about earlier, continuous deployment is a really tough process. And the book stops at continuous integration for the first inter- for the first edition, but we fully intend to go into the tougher parts of continuous deployments in the future. Okay, uh, thank you. I will go back to where I lost my thread, actually. And uh, a point I, I felt worth drawing out was when you're doing a configuration file, an interesting point highlighted in the book is a tr- there is a uh, chain of resolution, an implicit chain of resolution. This seems like when I looked at it, a typical place where people would fall over problems, not realizing that the uh, the configuration they thought they created wasn't happening because there is a chain of steps that are being used and it's ignoring the change they've made. For example, you've got it in your configuration file, but you also, some, at some point, somebody edited the Xcode configuration, which overrides your configuration file. That's correct, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, I, I don't think that that chain of resolution is uh, well documented or spoken about in many places, but um, you can. So one common build setting is all well, your Swift version, actually. What version of Swift are you using when building the app? And you can set that at the project level. You can define it for the project or you can define it for your target, your target being say like the actual app that you're building, or you can set it at a configuration level. Once again, you can have a release or a debug or a anything you can imagine configuration, or you can put it into a configuration file and you can have many configuration files as well. So there are easily half of a dozen uh, places where you can change a setting. And what determines what setting is actually gonna be used at the end of the day is this chain of resolution. And it's it's clearly it's clearly defined and, and uh, revealed in the book. Um, and actually in Xcode, it's pretty easy to see as well. It's uh, quite, it's hidden from you by default when you're looking at your build settings, but there's a change in that view you can make that'll actually show what is the bolt setting that's being used, which is easy enough to get. But beyond that, what settings are being set in other places for this bolt setting? And using that, it's sort of a nice way to debug and track down why is my bolt setting not coming through? So yeah, as we discussed already, you have a lot of experience in building different types of apps for different companies in different industries, right? And you've probably seen or had a chance to look into different practices when it comes to release train models. So what's your personal experience? What kind of tendencies do you see? How do companies approach this? I think that it changes a lot depending on the type of company. And again, sort of going back to that analogy I used earlier of a fast-paced startup that's hired their 100th engineer and a larger, more secure enterprise like a bank um, that values security over anything else. And depending on where your company is on the spectrum, 
or you as an individual developer where you are on the spectrum, you might value those frequent releases more, or you might value taking things steady, a role in deployments and lengthy, uh, lengthy sessions of regression testing, things like that. But um, your main concerns are how important is time to market and how important is preventing as many bugs as possible before releasing. Depending on where you fit in with that, you can sort of plan your release strategy accordingly. And then once again, that last chapter of the book goes into um, real world examples. One of them being a startup where you need to deploy really quickly and the other being one where you need to focus a bit more on security. So yeah, release train managers or release managers would have to take all these factors into account in most industries, right? There's one thing that we're really curious about and it's the practice of doing code freezes specifically in a retail and mobile shopping. Have you had any experience with that? I haven't had any experience with code freezes that stop work on an app that you're trying to release. Uh, so I'd be interested to hear what, uh, what are your experiences with that? So at the end of last year, we did some research and released a report about code freezes and mobile shopping. And we wanted to see which companies stopped releasing, which companies continued releasing and what it meant. And we saw that the majority of companies stopped releasing around Thanksgiving through December. And the next time they released to production again was in January. So they wanted to kind of avoid any kind of uh, bugs or app freezes or any mistakes that could have caused a million dollar loss for the business. And I think one thing can be sure is for a mobile shopping company to continue releasing, they have to be so extremely confident in their processes that there's no need to stop the releases because they know that there won't be any mistakes and I think this is really interesting and what do you think about that? Well I think it definitely comes down to the benefit of quick turnaround times and reducing that release cycle. I think when the release cycle is effortless it doesn't take a lot of effort to fix a bug and get that into your hands of users really quickly. I mean, I also understand that for these sort of retail apps, I think the last thing they want to do before major shopping season is introduce a bug at the expense of giving a fancy new augmented reality feature to the user. I mean, they're more worried about uh, those transactions coming through. But those fears, I think, would be greatly reduced by a stronger focus on mobile DevOps and basically getting this practice down. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. So obviously the main learning resource we refer to in this episode is your book. But other than that, what kind of other resources would you recommend to listeners? I think that people are very different in how they, they tend to learn. I remember reading something a while ago about uh, the different brain types and um, what sort of materials that different people like to, to actually learn. But Maybe it's clear by me saying that I read that, that I'm, I'm a reader. I really like reading and that's where I, where I basically learn, you know, as opposed to video and things like that. So most of what I've learned is came through books and I would, I would really recommend becoming a better iOS developer by 
reading language agnostic programming books. Basically, if you focus on becoming a strong engineer above other concerns, above you know new technologies, those skills apply sort of in any sort of uh, platform you want to get into. So for books that I can recommend, I would, I would definitely say just the category of language agnostic programming books. The few that I really enjoyed back in the day were Uncle Bob Martin's books, Clean Code, Clean Architecture, those lines of books. And my absolute favorite language agnostic programming book that I got into uh, when I was a junior developer was Code Complete, which is, I think, a little bit antiquated today in 2021, but it, it just covers such a wide range of topics and and concerns. Going a little bit into code, and I think if I remember right, it's uh, C sharp code in the book, or in Java, but uh, it's of such a little concern because the skills are meant to teach you how to become a better engineer, no matter what language you're writing in. So I would definitely focus on those type of books, if books are your thing. And beyond that, I would say, learn your tools. So if you're going to be spending your whole day in Xcode, or your whole day developing iOS apps, uh, it, it pays dividends to learn how Xcode is working. And if you're uploading your code to GitHub at the end of the day, it pays to learn what Git actually is and how your version control system works beyond a cheat sheet that you would find online that just lists the most common Git commands. Just find a strong material to teach you Git and you will, you'll never go wanting again for like a quick explanation of how to do something. It's, I have one more recommendation or something that's not uh, programming related at all. For sort of a more personal management book, I would strongly recommend Getting Things Done by David Allen. The, the key takeaway of the book is that you can't keep everything inside your brain. You need systems around your daily tasks and everything that you're learning. And um, I mean, we're living in the 21st century and it's, it's just constant information influx. And so getting things done talks about uh, setting up systems around that to, to basically get it out of your brain and into the world where you can rely on it later. And one quote that has stuck with me from that book and that I always refer to is your brain is RAM and not storage. And what that basically means is if your brain is not a hard drive, you need to get information somewhere written down into a system, whatever that system may be. I find it so valuable to get that information out of my head, write it down in some sort of system. It doesn't have to be the one recommended in getting things done. And uh, that frees your brain up for your own thinking, as opposed to trying to remember everything you need to get at the grocery store today and remember the fact that you need to walk the dog later, things like this. That's pretty much the only solid thing I remember from the book. And I don't follow the uh, getting things done system at yeah, all. Yeah. But yeah. That, that paradigm of yeah. don't store things in your brain, uh, get it written down. You know, if, if I read a book, a book that I want to learn something from, I have to write notes. Otherwise, why am I reading it in the first place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And that, that is the key part of the whole system, I think. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
This is really interesting how different brains learn in different ways. Some people learn better by listening, some by writing, some prefer visuals. And there are also those people who need the combination of different stimuli. And I think we should all understand how our brain works better because, for example, some kids actually learn better when they can move around the classroom. So if teachers would understand that it's not that they have attention problems, this is how they learn, then it would be better for everyone. Okay, so there's something we ask everyone. What do your parents and grandparents think about what you do? How do you explain your job to them? Well, I, I would say I'm, I'm very lucky with my parents and I've never had to uh, struggle to explain my job to them. But um, not because they are particularly technically inclined, but more because uh, my parents have supported me every single step of the way. And I don't think I would be where I am without them. So I, I didn't really have to tell them what I do. They were sort of there for the journey. Explaining it to friends has been more, sometimes more of a challenge, uh, especially the few times where I've told people that I, I write iOS apps, and that's generally how I explain it. And I've had a few people get a little bit starstruck thinking that I'm saying that I work at Apple. So I always have to let them know that no, I, I write apps for Apple devices, but uh, not lucky enough to be uh, working for them yet. <laughs> I think sometimes it's better to ask the person in advance how familiar they are with software development because most of the time I just assume that they are not because the people I hang out with are usually not. But there was this one time recently when someone I just met asked me where I worked. I went into this super long, really, really basic explanation. It was like a monologue about what software development is and what CICD is, etc. And he was just looking at me the whole time. And in the end, he was like, you know, I'm actually a developer and I use CICD on a daily basis. So yeah, that was a bit awkward. Anyway, I think we're reaching the time limit. Is there uh, something you would like to add, a closing thought or something like that? Yeah, I, I don't have much to add except that, um, well, I think that mobile DevOps can tend to be overlooked because it's so easy to deploy an app to the uh, Apple App Store as opposed to if you were uh, deploying a web app, you know, there's no app store for you. It's really easy, but very hard to master. And I think, uh, I think we've covered that today. So uh, very happy for the opportunity to, to spread the word a little bit more. And I love what you guys are doing at Bitrise, as I said. I'm an avid user myself. And thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. This was a perfect closing thought, actually. So thank you so much again, Keegan, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking to you and learning about your book and your work. And it was a super interesting episode. Well, I say this all the time, but it was super interesting. And thanks, Kevin, for joining. Yeah, thanks to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Keegan. No, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mara. Everyone, you can follow Keegan on Twitter at Rush Keegan. And if you would like to read his book, iOS App Distribution and Best Practices, I've added a link in the show notes. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. Bye.